still doing the Renation novel, and we're finishing up part two of this novel with chapter 19 and 20. So this is a pretty big moment. Um, if you've made it this far, then congratulations. That's a, we're, we're, we're more than halfway through the book now. <laughs> and things are getting even more exciting. But before we get there, just do housekeeping as always up top. You can listen to us everywhere. Email us at podcastcore at gmail.com. Visit us at podcastcore.com for all of our info. And then follow us on all the platforms because that helps the most with discoverability. So we appreciate it. Leave a like and comment on the one you choose. Uh, but the easiest way is word of mouth. That's how we've gotten this far. Tell a friend to channel their willpower by listening to the Casuals of Runeterra podcast. So. 19, chapter 19 is a long chapter. So let's just get into it. We're going to move at a clip here uh, because these two chapters are essentially wrapping up this section, right? So we're going to do a bit of jumping around. I'll try to make it clear on where we're at. So let's do it. Scene one of chapter 19. This chapter is the longest chapter so far, I believe. And for a good reason, because we resolve a lot of things here uh, to keep this story moving. So Callista wakes up. And she's dreading that she still hasn't heard a decision from the council. She's going to meet Jendakaya later that day. I'm going to start calling Jendakaya JK because <laughs> we're going to be saying her name a lot. And I don't got it in me. <laughs> so she's meeting JK at sunset, but that means she's a full day ahead of her, right? She's a soldier. So she's usually up very early in the morning, earlier than most of these scholars who like to sleep in, it seems. So she decides for once, instead of wandering on the city, trying to get in a building she can't get into. She's going to wander outside the city limits for the first time since, you know, she arrived at the docks. So a few things happen. Callista sees her first Elnook, which means, you know, if you play Legends of Runeterra, the card game, you're familiar with those lovely creatures and that deck <laughs> related to those creatures. And there's a quote here that kind of describes what she sees. So, quote, Leaving the neatly paved white stone road, she climbed over a low dry stone wall using a wooden still and followed a muddy track up a hillside to get a better sense of her surroundings. A child's swing hung from the bow of a lonely tree atop the hillock, which was afforded good views. Hilia rose to the south, remember that's the city name, gleaming and majestic in the morning glow while the sea glittered like shifting jewels to the west. The north and east were dominated by rolling, verdant hills, pastures, and pockets of woodland. A number of villages were visible, and thin lines of smoke rose from chimneys. A wagon drawn by a train of bullocks was making its slow, winding way along a road in the distance, and the tiny puffs of white dotted against the green hillsides showed where other herds grazed. So this is a pleasant view, right? Probably the most pleasant thing we've seen, um, or at least from her perspective. And it, it, it's probably because she's been trapped in this city, essentially, um, not just because of the mist, but also waiting on the decisions of the council. So this is a good you know, decision to go for a little hike. And this experience is directly countered, you know, post this description, she sees the people and it counters her previous notion that you know, the non-academic people of the Isles would be treated as lessers or exploited because all the people she sees in these rural areas, 
we're living humble farming lives, right? Especially compared to the peasants in Camivore, um, which live in squalor. But Callista being, you know, the way she's raised, we talk about this with, you know, the things that are instilled in people in Damasia, no matter who they become when they get older, she still has that suspicion about Helia and the Blessed Isles. So during this hike, she comes across some very old trees, which seem to have a magical presence to them. And she was under the impression even that as she was in this forest, that it's alive and in some way is kind of moving slightly when she's not looking. She even says that, you know, one of the trees has what looks like a face in it and seems to have some life to it. And she appreciates, you know, it's kind of creepy, but she appreciates the existence of this forest that she knows is older than humanity that's allowed to grow wild and be free uh, despite the prosperous city that's sitting right next to it. Um, and that gives her an odd sense of peace. Then she decides, okay, you know, I've had enough. Time to return to Helia and wait for this damn council. And this takes us to scene two. So in scene two, she's returned to find Tyrus playing with some kids. It shows a lighter side to his personality since he's usually stern. And then he's like, oh shit, she's here. Sends them off to their lessons for the day. And, you know, apologizes again for the delay. And they discuss the delay and the council's decision, et cetera, et cetera. And Callista mentions, she's like, you know, deep down, I'm still impatient. Tyrus says, I get it, right? We, we understand. It's been longer than I thought it would be. And then she decides, screw it, just returns to her room. And this takes us to scene three. So now we jump to Tyrus, now returned to his suite. And Rise is there studying. And he still feels this presence following him, this shadowy presence ever since our previous episode. And Tyrus notices he's distracted from his studies, but Tyrus just sees it as Rise always being distracted from his studies. So he tells him, you know, just focus, right? And he doesn't dig any deeper than that. And then there's a heavy knock at the door and Rise is scared shitless. It's anxiety time, right? He opens the door and there stands Ehrlich. And Ehrlich tells him, listen, I found something I need to show you. And also I need to pay you, you know, what I promised. Meet me, et cetera, et cetera. And during this chat, Tyrus walks over and he notices Ehrlich and they have this awkward exchange. And Rise for the first time is watching these two interact and starts to understand how Ehrlich feels about Tyrus because Tyrus literally hits him with the, you know, new phone who dis kind of thing where he doesn't remember Ehrlich. Ehrlich will never forget who Tyrus is. And after they talk, Ehrlich brings up the choosing and Tyrus is like, oh shit, this is that guy that I essentially took his job which relegated him to being a thresher, right? And after a bit of awkwardness, Tyrus excuses himself from it. And Ehrlich even lies to him to say, you know what, I was just knocking and looking for something or someone and I knocked the wrong door. He says goodnight and he leaves, right? He already delivered his message to Rise. He doesn't have to overstay his welcome and Ehrlich never overstays his welcome. This takes us to the next scene. So scene four, Callista meets JK in the park, right? So now we're in the you know, evening portion and she takes her to one of the grand buildings. And remember, I'm going to call her JK is Jendakaya. She's in awe as she's leading Callista through this grand building because there's not only one library, there's multiple and they're completely filled with books. 
since Camavor has nothing comparable, that's why Callista is shocked um, by the sheer amount of knowledge. But J.K. tells her, you know, it's a gift and a curse because these scholars only gather this knowledge to transcribe it and then essentially hoard it and not let the outside world have access to it, which sucks in her eyes. And it does suck. I agree that, you know, they're taking essentially, think of it as if they were taking things from these cultures, bringing it to a museum, and then locking the museum down so no one can come see the thing. I mean, there's multiple levels of wrongness there, uh, but this just seems so wasteful. And she mentions that this also applies to artifacts as well, not just books. And the goal of seekers like Tyrus are to go out and seek these powerful things and to bring them back. And that's what they do. They travel the world, gather these powerful tools, and bring them back. And there's even, you know, this is what she says. She says, it's what seekers like Tyrus are doing. Gathering up all the magical artifacts they deem too powerful to be left out there unattended. They bring them here, lock them up where they can do no harm. And rather than innovate, and discover something new, that's not the Fellowship way. The Fellowship is obsessed with cataloging and gathering knowledge, but not furthering it. And she even mentions that they view the outside world like children, and these are toys that are too dangerous for these children to play with. So, this goes on to J.K. now telling her about the Sentinels. And this is important. This is probably one of the most important things in this chapter. Uh, because if you've listened to our Sentinels of Light episode, you understand the significance in the future. So check those out. I don't think it's, it, I wouldn't say it's so much of a spoiler. It is in the future, right, of what happens, a, a altercation that occurs when the Sentinel of Light team has to be brought together or a new one has to be created, but it still gives you enough information here to understand why this is significant now. And, this used to be the most important thing to the fellowship in the early days of Halea, but now it's seen as a small group. It's a small group now of a couple of people, and they're seen as a nuisance, especially when it comes to the finance side of things. Then she's like, okay, that's enough, you know, knowledge. Opens these plain-looking doors, and they're comparatively plain, right? Everything is so opulent that even these opulent doors are lesser, in a sense. Like, Callista can now see the difference. She opens it and reveals a workshop, and Callista's jaw literally drops, mainly because it's the antithesis of the rest of Halea. It's a messy armory. There's smoke, soot, and racks of weapons, and Callista was not expecting that. She knew armory was already a shock, but to see this was even more so. Then inside, she, uh, JK introduces her to her two apprentices. We have Piotr, and then we have Ayila. And she shows her the relic stones for the first time. And these are smooth carved stones. Some are in different shapes that the first sentinels used to defend Halea. Uh, and this is before, obviously, the mist was there. And she simply tells Callista how these work. They siphon magical energy from the spirit realm and store it in a stable form. A lot of that simple sentence, Callista has no idea what she's talking about. Callista understands the spirit realm, which, you know, if you listen to any of our Ionian episodes, you'll have a better understanding of. But 
specifically our Shen-related episodes as well. To Camavorians, the Hall of Ancestors is what they call the afterlife or the spirit womb, quote-unquote, which could be like Valhalla, maybe. That might be a bit of a reach, but that's immediately what I thought of when I, when I heard her say Hall of Ancestors, right? Anyways, JK tells Callista more about the first Sentinels, and then she finally lets her hold one, right? She's like, here. Here's, here's a, here's a uh, version that we've created where we're doing half stone, half our own creation, and trying to channel that same power from the original weapons. And then she takes her to a different room. And this seems to be some sort of firing range Calissa's unfamiliar with because, like, the amount of destruction here isn't similar to what she's used to, right? Think about not seeing gunpowder being used before and getting this display of a you know, charred holes in the wall. Um, it's a massive room, rubble and suits of armor knocked down and shot through and charred. And she's like, what the fuck did this? Because all she knows are these little stone things. Um, if you've seen Lucian's uh, uh, art or in game, those guns, quote unquote, he's holding aren't really guns. They're just pieces of stone if you look closely, right? So anyways, she tells her, all right, Try firing this weapon. Calissa's like, there's no trigger. There's no projectile that's visible. I have no idea what's going on. And she says, you must will it to fire. But this doesn't work on the first try, which they know, right? They're kind of teasing her. So smiling, JK walks over, takes the weapon, levels at the target, and a burst of light comes out, and it knocks the target back. And Callista once again, literally, her jaw drops. And once again, put yourself in her shoes, right? <laughs> She's never seen anything to this level. The closest thing I can relate this to is like her first experience seeing Rise and Tyrus use magic when they went to help them while their ship was being raided, right? It's like that level of shock. So JK winks at her. Callista kind of examines the still glowing weapon and then goes over the target, looks at the hole in it, feels the warmth on it, and is just still in shock. And then I want to read this quote here <laughs> where Jendikai is like, it's pretty fun, right? And Callista said, let me try again. And that takes us to our next scene. So scene five, we jump back to Rise and Ehrlich. And I know we're moving kind of fast here, but stick with me. Um, Rise and Ehrlich are now heading towards the Great Library and they arrive at Grail's place and Rise is immediately like shocked because he realizes how crappy it is. I'm going to read the way he describes it. The walls were close, the roof low, and a bone-numbing chill hung in the air. It felt like somewhere you'd lock someone away if you wanted to forget they, they existed. A hateful obelite? I don't know what that means. The contrast to Tyrus's lavish suite was painfully stark. No wonder he has so much hate for him. He peered around, Soaking in all the details, the hard pallet and its threadbare blanket, the chains and hooks and keys hung upon the wall, the tidy stacks of tomes upon rickety shelves, the line of lanterns by the door. A simple wooden desk occupied one corner, and a book, sheaves of paper, ink blots, quills, and a rack of small bottles were neatly arranged upon a ledge behind it. He eyed the reddish-brown stain on the floor and the black mold creeping up the wall with unease. Everything about this room had an air of menace. So it sounds like he's just describing Ehrlich, right? <laughs> yeah. 
if you just read this description, it really does put into perspective how Ehrlich is the way he is, or it reinforces the way he is. So anyways, Rise just wants to get his tome and leave ASAP. He doesn't want any more to deal with Ehrlich and all his craziness. Uh, but then he hears a slam door behind him, and then it's locked. And Ehrlich says, hey, let me show you something. Grabs his hand, takes out a knife, and slashes it. And this is all within a moment, right? Rise is back in hell. If you remember our previous episode, when Ehrlich was leading him through the labyrinth of um, caves and dungeon quarters, he's back there. And Rise calls him insane, and Ehrlich tells him, you know, shut up, just give me your hand again. And he takes a glass dropper and squeezes some of the waters of life onto his open hand again. And then once Rise wipes his hand off, like wipes the blood away, where the wound was, there is none. It's completely healed, and it healed in a moment, right? He's shocked. And he immediately thinks, why would they keep this secret? Because remember, when, you know, if you didn't listen to it in the last episode, Rise's first encounter with the Waters of Life, he didn't really test it in any significant way. He drank some, which was crazy. Um, but this is his first time seeing it in action. So now he's like, dude, this could help the world. It's the save the world mentality now. And Ehrlich immediately responds, you know, they kept a secret because power and control, it's that simple. Rise understands that this could help illnesses, right? And lets slip while he's talking about that, that the princess is looking for it. That gets Ehrlich's attention because he doesn't know what fucking princess he's talking about. He's like, what princess? And he's intrigued. Rise is disgusted, right? Um, because after he dripped the water, on Rise, he wanted to show him something else. And I'll read the quote. He goes to a drawer, pulls it open, right? Pulls out a rat. And it says, he dripped water from the dropper onto the dead rat. Rise drew closer, morbidly fascinated. At first, nothing happened. But then there was a slight movement. It wasn't from the rat itself, though. Or rather, it wasn't from the rat's body. A shadow quivered around the vermin's corpse followed by a flicker of green-blue light and Rise's eyes widen in horror. A shadowy version of the rat, as insubstantial as smoke and rimmed with balefire, tore free of the dead flesh. The spirit lifted its head, mouth working in soundless scream, and twitched, seemingly in agony. Rise lurched backwards. The ghostly rat gave a final silent screech, jerking its head around spasmatically, then settled back into its corpse and was gone. Yeah, that's an experience. Like I said, rises in hell. <laughs> and he's disgusted. But Ehrlich goes on about overcoming not only illness, but the concept of death. And then starts talking about working together again to try to expose the masters and hold them accountable. You know, all the stuff Ehrlich's been saying. But Rise can see in his dead, cold eyes that he's lying and he wants no part of it. So Grail angrily gives him his tome. Right? He says he's a man of his word, unlike the other fellowship members. Rise takes it, tells Ehrlich that they are nothing alike, they won't work together, and they'll both keep this quiet. And as he's leaving, he looks back to see Ehrlich staring hatefully at him. And I can see this like in a, in a show being a major moment um, of him looking at him in disgust. And he says, they were right to send you down here to rot. It's where you belong. And that's where chapter 19 ends. <laughs> what a ride. So chapter 20 
is a shorter chapter comparatively. <laughs> uh, but there's quick burst of scenes here, right? It's much more rapid um, because we're trying to wrap up part two now and get into the back half uh, or back third of the book. So scene one, Rise is running across. We're picking up right where we're left off, right? Rise is running across this moonlit courtyard, thankfully getting out of that dark vault area, never having to go back as far as he's concerned, but he still feels that damn shadow presence, right? And he still can't see it until suddenly he turns around when he finally calms down a bit and there's one standing right in his path. And it points at him again, like it did in our previous chapters, and begins walking towards him, and he stumbles and runs in the opposite direction. And we go right into scene two. So Jendakaya, JK, is walking with Callista, kind of walking her back to her suite, and getting some fresh air because she likes to work late anyways. And they're talking about the fellowship and how the funding works, and how they refuse to spend any funding on military defenses, because the mist is there, right? They don't care in case it falls because it just hasn't happened in hundreds of years. They don't want to spend that money there. They they rather spend it on gathering up artifacts and tomes and hiding them away from society. And then suddenly we get some crossover here where Rise is running by and he stumbles across them. He's screaming, it's coming. Naturally, they don't know what the fuck he's talking about, right? Um, it's the middle of the night, what's going on? And then they see the shadowy figure following him which is scary because up until this point, the only person that's interacted with a shadow figure, as far as we know, is Rise when he originally got the waters of life. And Calissa doesn't hesitate. Remember, she's war trained, picks up her spear and immediately throws it with perfect accuracy at the shadowy figure. It's a shadow, so it goes through it, right? The physical object has no, no effect on it. So JK decides to get fancy pulls out one of her relic weapons and fires it. And the beam of light strikes the shadowy figure and actually does damage to it. And there's like a bit of shock on both ends when this happens. So she shoots it again, <laughs> which is very smart. Remember, like in any zombie movie, always double tap. <laughs> and after the second shot, the apparition gets blasted apart and it collapses into a vapor and no longer exists. And all she could say was, huh, <laughs> and that's where that scene ends. So this takes us to scene three. And the three of them are now back in Callista's suite, exhausted, right? The sun is coming up. And Rise keeps telling them that he doesn't know why this is happening. I have no idea. I was just out, you know, doing my thing and this thing appeared. Okay, Rise. But thanks them for their help, which is also weird because Rise isn't really polite or wasn't polite before all this experience, which I feel like, you know, as a, an aside here, I think this moment in time is where we get an adjustment in the personality of Rise, where he's kind of forced to grow up uh, because he was in hell from the moment that ship arrived on shore. <laughs> so he thanks them and then he leaves because he doesn't want to make Tyrus wonder where he's at. And the other two immediately agree that he was lying to them. Every word out of his mouth was a lie. And JK tells Callista something that like this has never happened, right? Because Calista doesn't know the history of Halea, but she's, as far as Jendakaya knows, she doesn't know about apparitions just wandering the street chasing people in Halea. And then two custodians show up and interrupt them to tell Callista, hey, by the way, the council's made the decision and they're ready to talk to you. 
And that changes the vibe, right? They no longer really care about the shadow thing because this is why Callista came here. And then we go to scene four. So by my tone, you can obviously tell what happens. We start with Callista asking, so you're refusing to save a dying woman. And the council responds by saying, you know, the so-called water of life, waters of life do not exist. We're sorry that you've been misled to believe otherwise. We, the reader, know they're lying, right? She questions them. She's like, why, why did it take you so long just to tell me that if you knew they didn't exist? And they essentially just go on to gaslight her as a group. And they even mention at one point, well, you know, you should have just brought the queen with you. And we probably could have done something. To which Callista rightfully responds, how? Right? Halea is designed to not be approachable by outsiders unless you're brought here. That makes no sense. So she continues to lay into them, right? Until Elder Bartik, which we, we know to be kind of the head of the org at the moment, silences everyone, stops the back and forth, and then says this, quote, the custodians will accompany you to your suite and any aid you may require in preparing to leave will be given. Then you will be escorted to the docks where a ship is waiting to take you through the hallowed mist. Contact has been made with your own vessel beyond and it is expecting you forthwith. Your time in Helia has come to an end. You will not return. Our thoughts and hopes go with you for the swift recovery for your queen. Wow. This is like when you're dealing with a customer service as passive aggressive as hell. <laughs> it sucks, but what is she going to do, right? The only thing she can do is leave, and she does so reluctantly. And then we go to scene five. So Callista packs her shit. And she's escorted by guards to the docks. And JK rushes down, pushing the guards out of the way and hugs Callista, you know, lets her know that we're friends now <laughs> and we will meet again. I don't know how or when, but it will happen. She thanks her, makes a promise. And then Callista turns to see Tyrus waiting for her on the deck. And he also ever so apologetic, right? Up to this point, like Tyrus has always kind of been a good guy. He's trying to help her. He thought he could do something for her. Um, but she doesn't blame him for the council's decisions. And before they set sail, Tyrus mentions something. Tyrus mentions, hey, can you do me a favor? There's a guy downstairs. We work together. and I'm trying to pay him back sort of for you know making his life or playing a part in his life being shitty. He wants to talk to you privately for a bit. It won't be too long. Can you do that for me? And she's like, yeah, cool. I can do that. So she heads down to find you-know-who. Ehrlich is waiting, and he's smiling in that gross way. He does. He doesn't waste any time. He says, listen, they lied. They lied to all of us. He gives her a small vial of liquid. We know what that is. And he gives her a waystone. And now we know where this is going. <clears throat> so naturally, she wonders, what do you want out of this? I don't know you. You look creepy. And he says he wants them to return with the queen, with the king, with the army, whatever. And then when they get what they need and they leave, take him with them and give him a position in the Camivorian court. Then he tells her not to tell Rise or Tyrus about this. And naturally she's conflicted, right? Because Callista, this is what she came for, right? She's gone through all this. 
I mean, it's an adventure as we see it, but it's kind of hell as she's going through it because she wants to get home to help her friend and family. And now here's an opportunity, but it's in the most slimy way she can think of. And Calissa's not that person, right? Now she has to lie to Tyrus, who has wholeheartedly been trying to help her. Rise is whatever. Rise has been fucking, fucking off, right? Like, he doesn't care. She doesn't care about Rise too much. But yeah, but now she's given an opportunity to actually accomplish the, I mean, what felt like a hopeless mission that she came to do, even though it's in this manner. So she accepts it. And as Tyrus comes down to check on her, she hides the items, you know, she pockets them and tells him everything is fine. And this takes us to scene six, short scene to wrap things up. We're now back on the Dragonhawk, or Daggerhawk, sorry. And Venix wonders, hey, did you get what you came for? And after a brief moment, Callista says, maybe. And then when Venix says, okay, well, what's next? Callista says, home. It's time to return to Camelore. And that's where we leave off for part two. So what's next? Part three's next. <laughs> And if you've listened to our point five episode, uh, we did one of those for chapter nine. We did it kind of late, still a bit of fun if you want to check it out, um, where I talked to our special guest. But uh, we're going to do that again for this chapter, so you can expect a 20.5 after this. And then we'll just hop into part two and finish this thing out, because uh, this is good, man. I, I've, I mean, we're, we're more than halfway through the book, so I, if we haven't been disappointed at this point... I think we're, we're smooth sailing, pun intended. But with that, thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with the next episode. And as Hetch always says, take care, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>